This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off, not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 322 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Christina Correa. Now, we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, which was early in the COVID crisis and before a lot of the unrest that we're seeing at the moment. And ironically, I think this became even more powerful releasing it now. So Christina is a veteran of law enforcement. She was injured not once, but twice in the line of duty. Once caught between two cars when a DUI suspect was escaping. Another time she was shot by uh, some suspects. So a very powerful perspective on not only the dangers that law enforcement face, but also when there's a lack of support from the administration they work for. And I think that's a story that needs to be told right now. So a very powerful conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating we get elevates the visibility of this podcast to people who are looking for a project like this. And then take these incredible men and women's stories, this free library that we have now, use them, listen to them, use them in your training departments and share. All I ask is that you, the audience, help share so I can get these incredible interviews to the men and women on planet Earth that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Christina Correa. Enjoy. Christina, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know we've uh, we've been wrangling this uh, this interview with each each of our uh, commitments, but we finally were able to sit down. So thank you for coming to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thank you for including me. I appreciate it. All right. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? <laughs> I am out here in the lovely Santa Clarita, where it's pouring rain. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes, it's pouring rain today. Brilliant. Yeah, we got. I'm in Florida. It's beautiful blue skies. So. Yeah, ah, you, you guys probably need the rain more than we do, though. So very true, very true. <laughs> All right, so I'd like to start chronologically at the very beginning. So, where were you born, and then what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do? Okay, so I was born in Santa Monica, California. Uh, my father uh, was a police officer, and my mom she was an accountant, and then she became a house mom. Um, so 
uh, yeah, I you know grew up in Santa Monica, born, raised, went to high school there, went to college there, and then started law enforcement when I was 14 years old. Brilliant. Now, uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? Yes, I have one brother, and my gosh, um, one, two, three, four, I have like five sisters. One died before I was born, so I like five sisters, because two are half sisters, so from a previous marriage. Right. I've never heard anyone counting their fingers for their. So especially when you don't see everybody, you're like, wait, how many do I have? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So you mentioned about um, your dad being a police officer. So what did you see like earlier on, younger in your life, as far as the just, you know, his, his love of the job, the impact of the job, those kind of things? Well, he was a police officer. I was very young when he was a police officer um, and he retired in 76. Um, so I just remember hearing his stories. Um, just, you know, I loved like he was my role model. So anything having to do with law enforcement that he would tell me and just it was to me is interesting. And I always knew I wanted to do that. And then at 12 years old, um, after he retired, he was killed. Um, he was actually he got a phone call in the middle of the night. And actually, this month is his anniversary. The 24th is his anniversary. Um, it was my sister's birthday the night before on the 23rd. And he came home not feeling well. And all of a sudden, he um, gets a phone call in the middle of the night. And they're not sure if he was set up or what happened, but he ended up going to this bar and a security guard asked him to escort two drunk guys. And he walks out like a police officer mentality, helps escort the two drunk guys and a car pulls up and two guys get out. One shoots my father in the chest and to the two uh, drunk patrons and then takes off with the other uh, suspect. And um, yeah, they, they never caught the guys, but it's a long story in that in itself. Um, but because of that, it's really what pushed me to becoming a police officer. So did you obviously they didn't catch them? Did they have any idea of the backstory of, of motive at all? Or well, this is I, I'm dealing with another issue with my department because of it. Um, because they claim some guy confessed to killing my father, and supposedly the the confession is just so vague. It's it's honestly I, when I heard it, I was just disappointed in my own department and how they interviewed this guy. Um, there's a lot more to it, but I'm trying to investigate it further because my father at the time was also writing a book about the Mexican mafia and police corruption. He was doing a lot of different things, was involved in a lot of investigative ca cases, I mean, investigating a lot of cases because he was also a private eye. So there's a lot of different things that were involved. And the more I ask questions with my department, the more they keep pushing me away and be like, no, it's been resolved. Even though the guy wasn't arrested, um, you know, he claimed he killed your father, that kind of thing. And supposedly that guy was killed shortly after he was in prison because he was in a Mexican prison. And he tried to confess to killing my father. And then like a year after he like escaped from this Mexican prison, he was killed. So I'm sure there's a lot more behind that story and a lot more behind a lot of things. But my department seems to think that was it. It's just basically my father is the wrong place, wrong time. And I don't look at it that way. I think there was a lot more that my dad, you know, knew or was involved in and that, you know, he was supposed to go there and give some information to the bar owner. And yeah, just a lot of things that are not making sense. Yeah, well, and that's horrible. You got this this loose end hanging over now. I mean, if you knew definitely that was all it was, wrong place, wrong time, then um, you know you can put it to bed. But the uh, the uncertainty of it must be pretty awful. Oh yeah, but I figure there's a reason for everything, and I know like my father, he would have wanted to thoroughly investigate someone's case like this, and I feel he deserves the same. Absolutely. All right. Well, then carrying that on, then. So you mentioned about entering law enforcement at 14. Was that an explorer program? Yes. Yeah, so I became an explorer and then I became a cadet at 18. And then I was a parking checker. Then I was a water conservation officer when we had the drought out here. And then I was a community service officer. And then I was a college police officer where I went through the police academy. Um, and then I went to, I was there for a year. And then Santa Monica wasn't hiring at the time. And then I went to Santa Monica Police Department where I did a bunch of different things. I worked uh, patrol, then bike patrol, um, then gang patrol, um, then a little bit of vice, a little bit of narcotics, um, crisis negotiator, and then school resource officer. And then I was also an explorer advisor. Wow. So you had all the hats. Yes. All right. <laughs> so, so at least thank God I did all that. <laughs> well, going back to that, that list at the beginning. So you said the uh, parking checker. So was that like a, like a traffic warden parking attendant kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, I hated it. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> 
I hated it. I gave people so many breaks. I would like make sure a business, if I, you know, like there was a bunch of cars parked in front of a business, I would make sure I walk into the business and make sure they have no customers that are, you know, in there that could possibly get a ticket. So I'd give them a warning. And um, yeah, I was, I think, a little too nice for being a parking checker. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a thankless job. Not my thing. Yeah, not my thing. <laughs> um, um, all right. Well, then uh, I kind of want to just go back for a moment. So what about when you were younger as far as athletics? Clearly, you, know, you, keep, you keep in shape now. You did a profession that definitely required you to be in shape. Um, what kind of sports were you playing when you were a kid? Um, I was always involved in basketball or softball and then volleyball, dance. Um, so I was in dance production in high school. Um, and then I would be running. I did a little bit of track. So I did track in the police Olympics. Um, so we did like, you know, a little bit of, um, relay races and stuff like that. Um, I kept myself busy in so many different ways. I, I think that's important. And then I think that's what helped me also with my injuries to recover so quickly. Um, because I've always been involved in keeping in shape. You, you gotta have a body emotion, you know, it stays emotion, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Stays emotion, whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking of that, so when you got to the academy though, and you actually required to do the physical tests, how did you perform with the preparation that you had from your sports? Oh, you know, I, well, before, before I went to the police academy, I was always running. Um, I was already preparing myself. Um, so it just helped me when I, right before I went to the police academy, I already knew that I, I can run. I wasn't going to have problems there or with pushups or pull-ups or jumping over the fence. Um, I practiced that even though it had so many bruises on the inner part of my thigh. Um, but you know, I, I was prepared for that. I think a lot of it is mental and physical. Um, but it's a sort of both. And I think people who go to the academy, if they're really young, they're not sometimes ready mentally just because I don't think they realize, okay, when they're yelling at you, it's not because they're trying to like get rid of you in that sense. And, you know, like being like, it's about personal thing. It's more, it's about when you wear that uniform and you're out in public, these same people are going to be out there yelling at you, cussing at you and treating you like crap. And you're hoping that you can just tolerate it and not blow your, you know, blow your temper. Yeah. And that's sort of a different thing between the police and the fire. Like we get a lot, we get some very uh, militant instructors that are screaming at everyone and it's, it's different. You know, for us, it's more understanding that sense of urgency because yes, we need to be hustling, walking with a purpose. Whereas you, you, know, you guys are literally being screamed at and obviously a lot worse. So uh, it's a, it's a lot more pertinent to have that kind of, um, kind of, uh, instructor in the academy. So it is preparing you for the worst case. Yeah, but I think it's actually even even in the in the fire department, I think it's kind of the same thing. I mean, I, I think we all are, have to prepare ourselves for these emergencies or these these situations that you know sometimes get so out of control that in the in the time that you're going through it, your adrenaline's pumping, and then on top of it, you do have that extreme. You have the people yelling. You have the people yelling at you. Hey, you know, for a fireman, you have people yelling. You know, help my husband, help my wife, or you know, there's someone inside the burning building. So you have a little bit of everything yelling at you. Um, so I think it prepares you in a lot of different ways for both jobs. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, so what about as you're entering, I'm always just curious, uh, the, the weapons training and the, and the unarmed training, what was it like in, um, Santa Monica when you were a recruit? Um, well, I went to the Santa, I went to Rio Hondo police Academy. So before I went to Santa Monica, Santa Monica sends their now cadets, um, to, uh, the sheriff's department. So when I went through Rio Hondo, which was a tough academy at the time, um, I think it still is. I mean, not as much as it was before, um, but it was pretty tough. Um, but I, I enjoyed shooting. It, it was fun to me. It was especially because I, I never really shot when I was a kid, um, even though my father was a cop and he always wanted to show us. At that time, I was so afraid of guns. I like didn't want to touch anything. So at 14, I was already shooting guns because I was an explorer. Um, so that really helped when I you know, went into the police department and went to the police academy already knowing how to shoot. Um, so I really enjoy that. And then even the non, you know, basically the tactics with no, you know, without the gun, just all that stuff to me was, even though it was stressful and physically draining, I mean, it was definitely worth it. Yeah. Now it just kind of occurred to me, I didn't ask you this. So what was your own journey as far as entering the profession? Because obviously you had to overcome some fear. You lost your father. And then what was your, your mother's reaction as well? Because she, you know, she lost her husband and, and it must have been very scary for her, for one of her daughters to enter the same <laughs> profession. Well, my mom, her whole life, um, when my father was a cop. She felt she had to worry about him since he was a cop. And when he retired, she didn't feel like she had to worry about that anymore. Just, you know, he was out of that that profession in a sense, even though he was a private eye, very different. 
And when he got killed, she never expected that. So, you know, she, it was one of those things that when I became a cop, she realized that at any point, anything can happen. It doesn't matter if you're a cop or not at this day, you know, this day and age. I mean, you just got to be careful. And so she supported me. I mean, even though it was scary for her, um, she supported me. But I know for me, after I got hit by the car the first time, and then after being shot um, in the second incident and her getting those door knocks, I know that to me, that was more stressful and bothered me more, I think, than my mom. Because when I was at the hospital, I made sure I didn't cry. I made sure that she didn't think I was in pain. You know, it was more like comforting my mom rather than, okay, I'm okay. I know I should probably be crying right now because it's so painful. But, you know, I really wanted my mom to see that it was okay, that it wasn't as bad as it looked. Yeah. Well, I think that appeasing the fears of our loved ones, the only thing that we can really take into our own hands is our level of training. You know, so when you look your partner in the eye and say, literally, I am doing everything I can to make sure I come home. I'm training. I'm, you know, using my weapon at the range. I'm doing, you know, jujitsu, whatever it is. Then you're not, you know, for lack of a better word, blowing smoke up their ass. You're, you're telling the truth. Like I am doing everything in my power. But obviously the, what's outside our control is going to happen whether we like it or not. But there are so many things that we can do that will increase our chance, not only of coming home, but of having longevity in you know, overall health as well. Yes. I agree. I totally agree. And I think that's what's so hard nowadays. You see these officers that are so out of weight, you know, like, like basically they are out there and you know, they're not going to run after somebody and they'll just say, oh, I'm just going to jump in the police car. But no, realistically, it's like, no, I don't want to worry about you having a heart attack. If something happens while I'm running after somebody, it's like, I want to make sure you're going to be okay. And you're going to be okay running after somebody or even being in a police car that you're not going to have a heart attack because your adrenaline is pumping. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, I think it's very important. And I think what police departments should do is actually pay for them to work out. I mean, I think it's imperative. It's part of the job. I think that once you go to the department and you start your shift, your shift first start off with like maybe an hour, you know, or half hour of working out and then stretching and then, you know, just getting ready to go to work. So it's mentally, physically, everything ready, prepare yourself for that day. And then you go to work. But because we don't do the stretching and we don't do the workout, I think when we do get involved in a foot pursuit or something, that's when we end up getting injured. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the best answer that I've heard, I've asked so many people from all, all the associated professions, whether it's the military, the you know corrections, all these guests that I've had, and it's the middle ground. Like, there's, of course, there's ownership. So, Christina, James, we have to, you know, train on our days off. I was training in my, my garage today. Um, but there needs to be support from the department. Because I think I just did a little video on, on social media today about the effects of this job, and it does break us down. It does change our hormones in our body that creates weight gain, that creates, you know, mental health issues. Um, so both of those, you can't ask your, you know, department to do everything for you. You have to do some stuff yourself, but I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a, any sort of profession where lives are at stake and there's a physical component to that, then why would you not? encourage that on the clock as well exactly and and i think especially as like you said when you have you have the, the you know detac training you have your shooting training well then exactly why don't they have the physical training aspect like the police academy even though you don't want to keep you don't want to do it where it's like okay there's like time or this or that it's like no at least have some kind of physical um training to where you have a personal trainer in the like maybe in the the uh, locker room that's training all the officers to do the right correct way of a workout of using weights or even cardio or whatever so that they are constantly getting checked because we are having a lot more officers having heart problems all of a sudden they're in shape and one day they're having a heart attack. Um, and, you know, they would never have thought they're going to have a heart attack because they thought they were so in shape. I think they have to be aware and be on top of not just the physical, not just the, the mental, but everything, the whole package. I mean, we should be knowing what's going on with our officers before they go out there and all of a sudden they're putting themselves at risk also, not knowing what's the underlying, you know, hidden uh problem in, in, inside of us <clears throat> yeah absolutely one of my guests mick Storelli, who's um in queensland in australia and they, they obviously have a different system where it's kind of like the uk it's it's a government agency like a national government agency i think so they have these great centers where you know they they do work on their recruits during recruit class and then i think there's all this maintenance training if you get hurt you get you know mental counseling you get physical therapy but it's all in this facility so i think that's something to be said for some of these larger jurisdictions as they can literally put a wellness center to get their tactical athletes to to thrive yes and i think that would help overall everything i mean if you have that whole package in a police department 
and you know that you're physically getting fit, you know, because that we all know that that's a big, big thing when it comes to sometimes depression or other problems that we do, whether it's going to start drinking or or doing other stuff. If we don't have that physical aspect and we're keeping ourselves in shape, um, it, it kind of gets to the point where if you're on meds or you're doing something like let's just say you get injured <clears throat> and they now put you on all this medication. Well, you're getting depressed because, first of all, you can't work out the way you used to because you're injured. And then now you have you're addicted to these pain meds that they're giving you. And then you're having issues with like your husband or wife, whoever it is that's at your house is getting on you for things. Um, so and then you're now gaining weight. So it's a little bit of everything. So if you don't have somebody constantly on you, like get in shape, do this and have a mental like the mental wellness, physical package, the whole overall thing, you're going to be destroying yourself and it's going to mentally affect you in a lot of different ways. So it's, yeah, it's the whole package, I think. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I think that's the thing that they do well. And I want to say it might be New South Wales, just to correct myself on where mixed based, but, um, uh, you know, they also understand what the demands of the, the tactical athlete, the police officer is. So, you know, when I've been hurt in my career, I've gone to the local PT here, which has been great, but everyone else in there is, 78 year old people recovering from hip surgery and you know the, these kind of things so yep. yeah it's a very different thing. so you literally have to invent your own exercises because you know that you don't just need to get up and down stairs you got to go up and down stairs with 100 pounds of gear on you so it's a different demand than you know the the sweet old lady that's working out opposite you yep no and you know and i think that's the biggest thing is like if we it's like kind of with anything even like for instance um a lot of officers are going through their own issues with rehab you can't send officers to a rehab facility where you're going, where there's people that you've arrested before. You know, you have to have a place where it's just for first responders because then they will go, they will get help. They're not going to go get help if they know that they're in the same room with the same scumbag that they arrested like a week ago or something, you know? Um, and I think that makes a big difference. And same thing with gyms or working out. Like I think it's better when you, you are amongst your peers because you will push yourself. You know, you're not worrying about everything else, all the distractions you're there, you're working out, you're doing what you have to do. And then also you have somebody telling you how to stretch properly, you know, because a lot of us do not stretch. And that's how we end up pulling something when we're running or jumping over a fence or in the middle of something all of a sudden we get injured because, you know, we didn't stretch or do something properly. Um, but I think if you have something like that available for first responders, whether it's the fire department or the police department, and the fire department luckily has that, that, that capability of working out at work because they're right there and they're waiting for the call. But unfortunately, police officers, unless they're off work, they don't have the capability. They're not going to go to the gym while they're working because we can't. But if they can make it mandatory where, okay, we're setting a time an hour before or after you get off work, probably preferably before because it makes more sense. You go work out, you stretch out, and then you have someone there who's saying, hey, you know what? We're here for you. You need something. You let us know. You know, if it's a bad day, let us know because sometimes people will come to work mentally not there. You know, I mean, they might have had a fight with their wife or husband or their children, um, you know, just had a really bad day or something. And, you know, they sometimes take that to work. So I think that if you kind of approach all these things that from the very beginning, before they even start their shift, there might be less problems during their shift. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree 100%. Well, we're obviously talking about rehab. So you had a couple of pretty um, significant uh, moments in your career. So I know the first one was the the car incident. So kind of lead us, you know, the, the beginning of that call and then the, the weeks after that. Um, well, I um, was on duty. I was, it wasn't even my call. It was somebody else's call. And he was chasing a DUI suspect. And next thing you know, uh, we corner her. We block her in with our cars. And so as we, I get out of my car, I walk up to her door and like roll down your window. And she wouldn't. So I'm like, well, if you don't roll down your window, we're going to break your window. And at that point, her foot was on the brake. Her get her gear was still in drive. And um, so next thing you know, uh, she rolls down her window. And when she does that, I put my hand in and open the door. And as I open the door, I'm now kind of like a little triangle, like between the police car, her car, and the door. And what happened was the two other officers ran in to grab her, not realizing she still had her seatbelt on. So she wasn't going anywhere. So as they're trying to grab her and pull her out, she now freaks out. She now punches the ignition, you know, like accelerator. And so now I'm getting pushed between her car and my car and now like basically getting squished. So I'm trying to hold myself above both her car and my car, but between like underneath my belt and below, like basically my pelvic area, my knees, and everything were going one way and my back was going the other way. I was totally getting squished. And I remember thinking, I'm going to die right here. And I was trying to go for my gun. I couldn't even get, like, get to it, but she saw me. She was like, look at me dead in the eye. And I could see all the other officers freaking out. And I knew they were about to shoot her. 
And next thing you know, she ends up veering away from me. And as she does that, I feel the pressure release. And when I feel that pressure release, I throw myself on top of the police car and roll in front of the police car. She ends up taking off. They chase her. She crashes and they catch her. Um, she was basically mentally unstable, was on meds, was on alcohol, on a bunch of different things. Um, and they arrested her and they took her away. Um, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately for me, I, I did not have anything that was life-threatening. Um, my whole pelvic area was black and blue. Um, I had a hairline fracture to my knee. I was very fortunate during that time. Um, and you had a little bit of neck pain, back pain. And, um, and then, yeah, went back to work a few months later because I was a brand new officer. I was like on the job, I think, three years. So I was like, nope, I got to go back to work. I got to go back to work. I was so worried about being that, that officer that everyone used to say, okay, she's trying to, trying to milk the system. Um, and I think that's what's sad is that it's not milking the system. It's taking care of yourself, but people make you look bad. And so that's why so many officers go back so fast. Um, and I did. I went back so fast without taking care of my injuries. Went back, gave, uh, was on the job, make more years, like, let's see, that was 94, no, 96, that happened. And then in 2004 years later, I was when I had my shooting. So um, in that situation was, I, it was 4th of July. It was the morning of, like early morning. And we get a call, this guy wanted for murder, him and his friend. And they were on the Santa Monica Pier. And so we get to the pier. He, they arrested one guy who had two guns on him, and they had a struggle with him. And then the other guy ran to the back of the arcade. And so next thing you know, it was me and my partner. We end up going towards the back of the arcade looking for him, and we see a big commotion. And I thought, okay, maybe they have the guy. So I'm like, hey, I think they have him. So me and my partner start running into the crowd because there's a lot of people on the Santa Monica Pier behind the arcade. And as we're running through the crowd, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing the guy. I don't even know where he's at, but he had a hostage. And what he was doing, he was shooting at the uniforms. So all I hear is these bullets whizzing by me, like whizzing by my head. I have no idea where they're coming from. I'm like, okay, this is way too close. Where is this? The next thing I know, I feel something hit my arm. And I felt the vibration. It was, I felt to go down my arm completely, but I really wanted to say it was just a graze. So mentally, I was like, oh, it's just a graze. It's no big deal. And my partner's like, Christina, you've been hit. I'm like, no, I'm okay. He's like, no, 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 you're not okay. Look at your arm. It's just hanging there because it fractured my humerus and shattered my radius. I was very fortunate that it didn't go through my arm under my armpit because that's like when you see where the, it went in. Like if it would have gone straight through, it would have gone right under my armpit into my my chest cavity and it would have killed me. Um, I was very fortunate. It shattered my bone, like it fractured my bone and it ricocheted down that bone and then it shattered my radius and did a complete U-turn. So it came in and out of my arm. And then so basically my arm was just hanging. And so at that point, they try to you know, help me out and take me away. And the guy's still shooting. He ends up shooting two other officers. And I just remember getting put in a police car. Um, I don't remember getting, putting a, having someone put a tourniquet on me, which I think nowadays people need to realize how important that is because um, I could have bled out. And I don't remember seeing blood at all. I just remember being in the backseat of the police car, right, being rushed to emergency, still hearing everything going on at the pier going, gosh, I want to be there because my adrenaline is pumping so much. Thank God for that. Um, and once we get to the, the hospital, they weren't even ready for us. All I remember was us walking into the hospital and I see my cousin, she's a candy striper. She's walking out and I look at her. I'm like, wow, you look really pale. And at that point I just pass out. <laughs> and next thing I know is I'm on the gurney and we're inside and they gave me morphine and I didn't cry because I kept thinking, I don't want anyone to see me in pain. I don't want my mom to worry. And next thing I know, my mom shows up and they put me in surgery for several hours, like a 13 hour surgery. They told my mom they wanted to take my arm. And um, my mom's like, nope, save it, you know, do whatever you can. All I remember is I woke up, um, was partially paralyzed in my hand, couldn't move it, and um, was told I was never gonna use it again. And next thing you know, um, what was it? Kept going to rehab, did my did everything you possibly could think of. You know, I went to a second opinion, told the same thing, never gonna use it again. And I said, nope, this is not gonna happen. So I was in the gym twice a day. I was doing my own rehab. Like you said, you gotta do your own thing also. I was running. I was running with this contraption that looked like Freddy Krueger that would hold my it would, it would hold my fingers open. It looked so bad. I was like so embarrassed to wear this thing. But um, I little by little each day, I'd do my own thing. I'd massage it. I would um, do whatever I possibly could to get it better. And within, and I was positive in my head. I was like, I'm getting it back. I'm getting it back. Um, and within July to Thanksgiving, I opened my hand. Within a year and a month later, I was back to work full time. Um, I still have some limitations. Like I can't supinate all the way or pronate all the way. I can't touch my shoulder all the way, um, but I was able to do push-ups, pull-ups, manipulate the shock and a rifle differently. Um, so I was able to go back to work and gave them another eight years. 
and then retired. So. Well, it's amazing. I've had a few guests. Uh, Jason Schechterly was one. I mean, he was horrendously burned after being hit by a taxi and his car exploded. Um, and he went back to work as a detective. I mean, incredible. And Drew Strokes, another friend of mine who was shot multiple times, uh, just going to the store to get some stuff for some refugees they brought from Puerto Rico um, and left for dead. And he ended up going back. But two things that you've talked about. Firstly, the tendency to go early. Uh, I've seen that so many times and I actually sat through one of my exercise physiology classes at UF and they kind of basically told why that happens. Because when you're about 80% healed, you feel 100%. The body still has some healing to do. It kind of almost tricks you to, to let you know that you're you're good to go. And I think that you're absolutely right with that that pull to go back. It's so dangerous to go back too early because you're far more likely to get hurt. In my last apartment, I got hurt three times in five years. So they, they must have thought I was a China doll, but it was from, you know, the years and years before that. Uh, it just so happened that everything kind of dominoed. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the tendency to go back early, I think is a real, real pull on a lot of people. And the other side of that coin is some of these men, um, you know, that I've talked about went back, but then once they got back, they realized that actually that wasn't the best choice for their overall healing that, you know, things like sleep and, and elements like that were actually more important for their longevity than the pride, the badge of honor of going back to work. Yep. It's, it's the whole thing. And then even worse, it's like when I went back, um, I remember after my shooting and I was so excited to go back thinking, okay, you know what? I proved myself. I did everything I possibly could to go back to work. I'm gonna get the respect from these guys. Oh no, it was very different. It was, for me, it wasn't like I was one of the guys. It was, I was a woman who got shot um, and there was some jealousy and I didn't realize that. And I was very disappointed because I thought I'd be, um, you know, basically welcomed back and with open arms and these guys would like be all excited and everything else. It was very different. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a warm welcome. Um, it was very, um, very cold. And I remember one of our records clerk, she saw me and, and I'm normally this upbeat, you know, bubbly police officer smiling all the time. And she's like, Christina, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. And she's like, I see that you're not yourself. And she goes, and I know why. And she goes, I know you seem like disappointed in the way they, they, they um, received you, but don't. She goes, a lot of these guys are jealous. They're jealous that you're a female. They're jealous that you were shot, you know, as a female, like, and you have a story and you have a scar and you came back and you beat the odds and you have the whole shebang. And you know, these guys wish they were you. I'm like, do they not realize how much work I went through. Do they not realize it wasn't like just a broken freaking arm. It was like, I was partially paralyzed. Like the ment mental part of it was like grueling. I mean, I, there were so many times I was at home. I lived in the city I worked. Not once did I get, well, I had two, two officers stopped by my house to visit me, to make sure I was okay. Other than that, no one else came to visit me. No one checked on me. It was hard. I mean, I went through so much mental stuff during that time, not knowing if I was going back to work, not knowing if I was going to use my arm again. At the time, um, I was going through a lot of struggles, you know, personally, like I was engaged and called that off because that didn't work out and just going through a lot, a lot of things. And I remember sitting there going, God, why am I here? And I, I swear, if these officers knew the mental part of it, of going through these things at home by yourself, wondering if you're ever going to go back to the work you really love and had passion for, or if you're ever going to use your arm again or something that you can't use again, they would not be wishing that. And I, you know, it kills me. And that's what I realized you know, things have got to change, um, beginning at where when you are injured, you know, and your department, like, you know, no one talks to you or calls you. They should. They need to be on top of you because that's when a lot of these officers will commit suicide. If they know they might not have a possibility of going back to work or not feel like they fit in or not be part of something. And they're going through their own personal stuff or if they're by themselves, especially. I mean, there's a lot of issues that they can have that would be helped if the department was more involved. Um and I, I think that if these also these officers stop thinking about themselves and stop being so selfish and think, okay, let's work as a team, let's all be there for each other, then that would think, change things also. And I think, thank God nowadays, things have changed. Social media has helped. I mean, I know a friend of mine, he's an officer, he's been injured um, and he's going through a lot of struggles himself. And he's luckily been on social media and he even said, Christina, you know, I am very fortunate. I have the support from people all over the world because of social media. And he goes, but my own department, is also getting on my case because they don't like some of the things I post on social media. They don't think it's appropriate yet. It's just being funny. And I go, well, you have to realize there's people that are very jealous of you and you got to realize it's not you. It's the people that are out there thinking, Oh, look at this guy. He's off work and he's like playing around. No, you're not playing around. You're trying to humanize 
the badge. You're trying to humanize behind the badge. You're trying to humanize what we're about and not just that, hey, we're these hardcore officers out there. Like we can combat anything and we're immune to everything. We're, you know, we're fine. We're invincible. We're not, you know, we have our emotions. We have, um, you know, we bleed the same way. We, we go through our own struggles. You know, mentally we need help. Physically we need help. It's the whole shebang. It's so, um, it's, it's really interesting nowadays how everything is. Yeah. No, and then I've seen both sides of the extreme in my career. When my very first fire department, Hialeah, they had a, uh, a firefighter, I think he was an engineer at the time, uh, was hit by a car on, you know, on one of the scenes and almost died. And I believe he was either about to roof his house or he'd started roofing his house. So anyway, he's in hospital. They're all, you know, uh, visiting him and they actually, basically redo his home while he's in the hospital so when he comes back his home is completely finished by the men and women that he served with so that is obviously an incredible example of people doing the right thing but i've also seen on the other side where people are often the only time you even hear their name mentioned is people talking shit about them and like you said these are these are men and women that you know you stood next to on on a grinder you know on on day one at the academy and whatever happened to them, whether it was, you know, a physical incident like you, where you were literally wearing the uniform and getting shot, or let's say it was something less heroic, you know, as our perception is like alcoholism, you know, they are still your brothers and sisters and they're just struggling, whether it's physically, mentally, usually both. And to throw around the word brotherhood and sisterhood and yet act like that exactly is, is the polar opposite. And I think we really have to take take a step back and ask ourselves, are we doing the right thing? Because that's them and us, you know, the, the employer where you are truly a number, the bean counters, the politicians, they don't give a shit about you, 99% of them. But the men and women wearing the, the uniforms, even if they've got bugles or stripes, they sure as hell better because they're the ones that work their way through the ranks. But it's so easy to get caught up by your work day and you are tired and you are overworked. I get all that stuff. But you have to take a little time and reach out to these people that are off. Because just like you said, we're part of a tribe. And when you take us away from that tribe and then you add an injury so that identity is being kind of changed. Now you've hurt your back. You've been shot, whatever it is. That is a huge, you know, challenge mentally for these people. They're at home. You had a great point. They're at home with maybe wives or husbands that don't like them very much. You know, their home environment might not be nurturing. So it's so important for us to get out of our routine for a moment and say, hey, have you checked on so-and-so? Let's call him from the station. Let's call him from the, you know, the patrol car. And that one little phone call or text is going to make all the difference. Yep. And, you know, and I, and I say it from both sides, too, because I know there's a lot of officers probably going through their own struggles. And maybe they look at it as they don't want to be like reality checks in like that could be them. And they don't know how to deal with it because maybe they can't deal with that. Like they don't want to physically see that because it will remind them that it could happen to them. So there is a lot of, I mean, I looks at the pros and cons for both, but at the same time, I think that shame on my, shame on all of us who don't go and reach out. And I understand we all have our lives and we sometimes forget, or sometimes we don't even know that someone is out because we have such a big department and maybe people aren't aware of someone being off work or someone got injured because they weren't around when someone was told someone was off. So I understand those kind of things happening. But if we do know, shame on us for not reaching out. Shame on us for not being part of like, you know, his his well-being and making sure that he's going to be okay, not just physically, but mentally. That know he has our support. Because that's the biggest thing right now that we need to all show each other that we are going to be there for them. Um, and we, I hate to see all these officers right now committing suicide for something that was so minor that, you know, if someone would have just reached out and said, hey, we're here for you, that it could have changed everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Well, then getting back to your, your second injury. So you went back to work. What made you finally decide to retire? Um, well, I wasn't ready to retire. Um, I'm actually still dealing with work comp um, in, in the city. I actually um, had basically went to them and said my hands are still getting numb. I was having numbness in my arms. I wanted to see the doctor. Well, instead of them actually having me see the doctor, they prolonged my uh, my time and they basically used up my time. So they were saying that the doctors weren't available. So finally, when the doctors were available, I had already run out of my 4850 time, which is work comp time. And they basically told me that if you don't come back to work, um, you're not going to get paid. And, you know, um, what do you call it? We can't, we, help, we can't help you right now. So basically, either I retire and get paid or don't come. If I come back, I don't get paid. Um, or sorry, I get, I get, if I come back, I get paid. But if I don't, um, no, if I don't wait, what was the thing? Like if I don't come back, um, you know, if I retire, I get paid. If I come back, 
I'm not going to get paid. I have to use my time after you sick time or, or vacation time or whatever it was. And I'd already used that. So basically I had to make a decision. And at that time I was engaged and my ex at the time kept saying, you know what, just stop fighting it. Just, re- just retire. You know, you're injured. Let's have kids. Don't worry about it. You know, like let's, let's worry about having a family. And at that time I kept thinking, you know, that's, that's part of, it's definitely more important at that time to have a family and have kids. Cause you know, I wasn't getting any younger. Um, and I thought, you know what, they'll take care of me after I retire. Everything will be fine. Well, no, it's been a struggle ever since. I've been fighting for my being my own advocate. I've had two lawyers already, and I finally just hired my third um, because my second lawyer, the first one died of cancer. The second one, I just felt that he wasn't really doing anything. They have so many cases, and I felt like I was one of his million cases, and I was the one going out there, sending letters to the city, you know, doing all my homework, being an advocate for myself, and that's not right. And I mean, granted, you still have to be an advocate. You have to do your own homework. But if you're paying somebody to be your, your advocate and help your case, and they're not really doing that, it's kind of just disappointing. So, but the way I look at it, because of everything I've been dealing with, um, I've been working on a lot of other projects that are going to help other first responders not go through what I've been through. So I felt like I was forced almost to make a decision I didn't want to make, and I regret it, and I miss the job, um, but I also realized I can't do the job. I mean, I had a neck surgery and back surgery after I retired. Um, I need another neck back and back surgery. Um, I still have numbness in my hands. I have the tingling. I have numbness on my right foot. I mean, I try to keep positive. I try to keep active, but at the same time, there's days I'm good. And then there's days I can't even do anything. And people don't see that. And I don't let people see that. And uh, I, I kind of kick myself in the butt because I should be showing people that because I got to make people realize we are human. We're not robots. We're not invincible. You know, just because we look great and might look great in social media and pictures and everything else that isn't us. You know, it's just a facade. It's basically, okay, we're trying to stay positive and do all the right things. But at the same time, reality is there is there is a problem behind all that. Yeah. So. Well, and, and so when I heard your story at first, you know, and obviously that this fight you're in now is definitely a big part of it. It really reminded me of what I've seen a lot more so in the um, presumptive bills that we have. So whether it's heart disease, whether it's cancer, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we have this this bill. And then you hear these horror stories of these men and women, um, you know, fighting and fighting and fighting to get benefits for their family. And then they've ended up, they end up passing away and they, they never get it. And it's just disgusting. But I think that what really underlines it is yours is so, you know, cut and dry. Like you were shot on a call you know, buy a, buy a, you know, a shit bag for lack of a better word. You were told by the surgeon that they need to remove the arm, you know, so to go back and say, oh no, we can't, you know, whatever. There's, there's, there should be no discussion whatsoever. Yes, this is job related. Yes, you know, even if you went back, that was awesome. But when things start deteriorating, then there shouldn't be any question, but I do see this. And I want to preface this by saying, when I hurt myself in this last apartment, I have to give their workman's comp kudos. They were fantastic. They allowed me, once I got control of you know my medical plan, each time they were great. They never pressured me to go to light duty or anything. I did my rehab. I got back to work. Um, so there are some people doing it right out there, but I hear so many of these people, especially you know with, with these chronic diseases, um, and I'm sure there's a lot out there that were injured too that are legitimately to do with the job and they're just being given the runaround by, like I said, these people that don't care about them. And I think there are some people, you know, higher up that do, but sadly there are so many out there that don't and they have literally heard it, you know, told to me that there are certain groups that say, well, if we just wait long enough, they'll die and we don't have to worry about it. So I think this is a very, very important topic that needs to be spoken. If you're listening now and your department's amazing, disregard this. But this is for all the people who are fighting that have given so much in their their job and then getting no support when they retire. Exactly. No, I just, but you know, I, I I guess I gotta look at it this way. There's the ones that ruin it for us, and then there are ones that, you know, like me and others that have legitimate claims. And we just gotta fight harder. But and the way I look at it. If I didn't go through everything I went through right now, I wouldn't have thought of this idea that I'm working on. And I'll definitely let you know more about it later on. It's an app I'm working on because um, once it gets going, I definitely want you to let other officers and first responders know that this is there to help them. But if I wouldn't have gone through what I went through, I wouldn't have thought of something like this to help other other first responders. So because if I would have got everything handed to me, then this would have been not even an idea that I would have had. And, you know, I mean, sometimes some of us have to suffer to make sure that someone else doesn't suffer. So if I could help one or two people or, you know, a thousand people, then to me it was well worth it. 
Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head as well, but some people that ruin it for the rest of us, that's what's always held up as an example. Let's take unemployment. Well, loads of people are in unemployment at the moment after this COVID thing, you know, but when, you know, when that's discussed, usually it's like, oh, well, these people, you know, they have these cars in the driveways and they're collecting unemployment and they're getting this benefit and that benefit. Yes, those people exist. And there are those people in business, in multi-billion dollar corporations that are avoiding paying taxes and all kind. But that's not the majority of the people that claim for example, unemployment or tax benefits, whatever. Most people are good people. They use it as a, you know, as a step up to get their life back in order. And it's the same with workman's comp and some of these ones. Yes, of course, there's going to be people that are abusing it, but most people need it because they freaking got sick or hurt and they need the help to either get back to work or that we take care of them because they gave it all and, you know, that they're permanently affected by what they did when they served. Yeah. It's, it's, these are crazy times. This is just everything right now is just so, and we, we have to help each other out as much as possible right now with everything, especially happening. And even more so now with this virus. I mean, these poor officers, you know, our first, every first responder out there and even people that we never would have thought would be called first responders who are out there. I mean, we need to give them the proper equipment to make sure that they don't get sick and they don't, they don't have the proper equipment. Yeah. So, So what are you seeing in California? What am I seeing? Yeah, with this whole um, pandemic. Um, well, we have a bunch of I have a bunch of friends of mine that have the virus right now and they're quarantined. Um, you know, but I also see that a lot of these officers are working a lot of hours um, and they're saying that, you know, they're saying it's quiet out there. But at the same time, they're saying they could see little things happening um, that, you know, it could get could get bad if things don't get cleaned up. Um, and at the same time, I, I also hear that they don't have the proper equipment. I also hear that same officers think. There's other Australian there. They're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm invincible. This is fine. It's not a big deal. It's just like the cold. It's just like the flu. I'm like, no, it's not just like the flu. That's the problem. You know, we as officers sometimes think that we are invincible, that nothing's going to happen. And, you know, all of a sudden we kind of let our guard down and that's when something happens. And I tell these officers, I'm like, would you go out there and be in a gun battle without your vest? And they're like, of course not. I'm like, well, it's the same thing. If you're going to go out there and try to deal with this virus, then you need to have a mask on gloves on and everything you need to make sure you you have the proper equipment to fight it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I don't know. And then I also tell these officers, you know, if they have clothing that's going to be with their uniforms, you know, try to keep it separate, you know, don't bring that stuff back to their families, you know, or don't go back home, you know, wait until this does die down. I mean, a month is not that bad compared to having a lifetime without your loved one. So it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And that perception as well of our resilience, I think, you know, you have to, Ask yourself, like, if, if you're an officer and let's say, for example, you have blood work done and your testosterone is low and maybe you're on blood pressure meds, these are some of the pre-existing conditions that make you more vulnerable. So, yeah, you might be at a, you know, bench 300, but how's your overall health? How's your wellness? You know, and that's what worries me is that, you know, we we do have a lot of men and women out there that are able to do the job, but, you know, they they physiologically are probably a lot older than they are on paper because of the sacrifices they've made because of this job. Yep. I agree. Totally agree. Right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions that I love to ask people. Um, the first one, is there a book that you love to recommend? Mm. And it can be about anything at all. You know what? There's one that I read a while back when I was going through my struggles. It was called Triumph Over Tragedy. Um, I think it's a really good book for law enforcement officers. It's a little small book. It's not even that big either. It's like a little small little, you know, um, thing that you could read. Um, that was something that really helped me through what I was going through. Um, you know, if they, if they have faith, I would recommend them getting closer to God during the times they're going through their struggles because they will find a lot of answers that way. I remember when I was going through my struggles, I was like, I was really depressed. I was going through a lot. And this was during the time of my arm. And, and I remember seeing my Bible on my table and I will never forget this. I don't remember scriptures because it's not like I, I read the Bible that, you know, that good, but I remember this one, it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And basically talks about how God has a plan for us. It's not for us to understand, but there's a plan and to trust in him. And then the other one I read was, you know, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And, you know, it just kind of really resonated with me. And I realized, you know, there we can't control anything. We're not in control of everything in our life. You know, when we think we are, we'll be surprised. Um, but I got to realize that there is a purpose for us being out there. We got to enjoy our day. We got to be happy with what we're dealing with, no matter what it may be. And look at the good out of everything. You know, there are a lot of good comes out of bad. So 
we just got to try to change our perspective on things. Absolutely. Now you mentioned obviously the, the, the mental trials when you got hurt. What about you when you retired? Did you have any troubles transitioning out of the uniform? Yeah, I did. I, it was very hard. Um, you know, even though I was married, I was going through my own struggles with that. Also, I had a bad marriage, so that didn't work out either. Um, you know, it, it was very hard because not only did I deal with, I was married to this guy, he was also a cop and, um, he just had his own issues. Uh, I think that he was going through his own PTSD and other mental issues. Um, he was also abusive and it just got to a point where I was dealing with that, dealing with stuff like that. I would tell people before when I was a cop, you know, I was the one in control telling people, oh, you know, get out of this situation. And now here I'm in the situation that I used to tell people to get out of. So it was very humbling. Um, at the same time, I I didn't know where to fit in. I don't know, like, was I still in the in the cop world, like cop family? Or, you know, it, it was very, very hard to transition. I, I kind of felt like I had identity, identity loss. Um, at the same time, because I was also on a show called Survivor, it really helped me there because I was doing a lot of charities with a lot of other Survivor people. And that was like another family I had. So to me, I, at least I had a purpose to go help people in a different way. And so if I didn't have that, I think that would have been a lot harder to transition because I was now involved in a lot of charity events, raising money for different causes. Um, I was doing things with LAPD, with their PAL programs. Um, I really, really got involved, but it was now still kind of on law enforcement, but in a different dynamic. And then now I'm working for a company called American Police Beat and 911 Media, and they do apps and websites for, for a police associations or for anyone in that matter, but they do apps, websites, newsletters. They do the national magazine called American Police Beat Magazine. So that keeps me really busy and still kind of involved with my my same brothers and sisters. So it's nice. Brilliant. Well, actually, no, I meant to ask you about Survivor. So I know that was one of the, the, the pushbacks you got, wasn't it? That you were on Survivor and then they were saying, well, if you were able to be on that TV show, then then clearly you're fine. Yes. Well, when I was on Survivor, it was already six years after my shooting. I was already back to work full time. Um, I wasn't complaining about anything at the time because I was back to work. I and mean, even though I was in pain and everything else, I still went back to work. But um, I wasn't dealing with the work comp stuff. I wasn't going to rehab or therapy or anything. I was fully full back on the job. So what I tell people and I tell the city, really? So you're going to get mad at me for being on a, on a show that I didn't want to be on. I got casted for it. And I even was like hesitant to go on it. Um, and I thought my chief would say no. And he's the one that said, hey, this would be a great opportunity for PR and it's a way for you to make a million dollars if you win. So I thought, you know, he's right. I'll go use it for PR and great, you know, have the you know community be involved in some way, having someone from their community as a police officer be on a show like this to show positive impact. Um, and um, what do you call it? At the same time, um, I tell the uh, the city because they try to use it against me. I let them know, hey, what about if an officer was full time on the job and then now is doing CrossFit? It's the same thing, but I, I wasn't even doing CrossFit. I wasn't even doing stuff that high tech, you know? So it was a show, a TV show. And some of the stuff they show on TV isn't even as bad as doing CrossFit. And I was only on there 15 days. So it was kind of ridiculous for what the city is doing and trying to use against me. Um, and I still had my injuries. So I still had plates and pins in my arm. So nothing was changing. It's like, I still had the injury. It's just, I went back to work and I went on a show. It wasn't anything different. Yeah. Now, totally separate from from our main conversation. What was that whole experience like for you with the reality TV world? Um, you know what? It was it was interesting. Um, it, it was a, a very different because I mean, I, it, when I was on that show, it was um, what do you call it? Um, I was dealing with people that I didn't really like, kind of relate to because a lot of them were younger. Um, but it was different. It, I mean, but at the same time, after I left. Um, the show and now you know we're doing charities then you're like a family because everyone is in the same boat everyone's been pushed off or whatever and so everyone's like and they're all on different shows so it's actually really interesting because I kind of had another family in that reality world um, but it opened up a lot of doors and I used that 15 minutes of fame to do good so it was a good thing excellent excellent all right well back to the closing questions then what about a, a movie are there any movies you love like police movies or just any movie in general any movie that's ever been made ever Hmm. Well, I did. Well, I was uh, Jennifer Lopez's technical consultant in her movie Angel Eyes. So I definitely like that movie. <laughs> um, uh, I like, God, there's, well, I'm trying to think of all the show. There's so many, like, oh my gosh. Um, now they're trying to think about them. They're like, my mind is just like a fog. Um, well, no, while you're thinking, so, so tell me about Angel Eyes. How did you end up getting on that project? 
Um, well, because at the time, my partner kept telling me, God, you look, you remind me of Jennifer Lopez. And so he knew the writer who wrote her, who wrote that movie. And he went on a ride along with me and started asking me questions that he used on the movie. And then they borrowed some stuff from me. They borrowed my pictures from me. So those pictures are in her movie. And then I met her and I did some consulting. And then when I got shot, she actually sent out a picture signed by her saying, we're hoping you get better. Um, you know, it was really cool. I mean, it was really neat meeting her and meeting her after when I got shot. Um, it was, it was really cool. But that's how I got it. It was from my old partner and he knew the writer. Brilliant. So I think it was Santa Monica, I believe. Um, was it Long Beach? I forget now. But anyway, we did the... Um, the movie World Trade Center is a Nicolas Cage movie, and and I was kind of in the acting stunt oh, world. Yes, then. Yes, that was a good movie. Yeah, so um, I got a bunch of my firefighter friends from Anaheim at the time, um, and we were basically glorified extras, but we played firemen and New York firemen in that for for a while. But that was down in one of the docks. It was a bunch of uh, old shipping containers. Actually, it was made to look like um, you know the the World Trade. But uh, yeah, very, very weird pretending to be a fireman, recreating, you know, the most one of the most tragic events in firefighting history. Um, but with, you know, with a bunch of Long Beach and Anaheim and all the other guys that were there. So it was a very unique experience. Wow, that that that, and that day itself was another thing. My God, that. Oh, my God. I I commend you guys as firemen because that was just incredible. I mean, I, I just that the whole thing, I just gives me chills. I remember when I was I was working the front desk when that happened, when 9-11 happened. I was uh, in the front desk and my watch commander had the TV on. And then I saw the first one and I called my friend in New York and I told her to look out her window because her office looked overlooked the trade center. And she saw the second one hit and so did all the people at her work. And I just, yeah, I just remember like it was yesterday. So it's that itself is just unbelievable. But that was a great movie you did. I mean, that you're in because they did a re- good recreation of it. Yeah. And actually, that's a great example as well of what we've been talking about in this conversation. So a lot of those firefighters and, you know, obviously all the professions that were there, um, you know, from, from first responders to welders to everyone, um, you know, they were hailed as heroes. And then fast yeah. forward a few short years and now they're fighting just to get the nominal, you know, benefit for their cancer that they got from that. So. Yeah. All of them are dying. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. And that's what's going to happen right now, even with this this COVID thing. And I was like, you know, all these officers are fighting for their benefits. And they're basically a lot of them are like getting told, oh, no, you won't get paid. And luckily, they're changing that because everyone's social media. Um, you know, the, the government's saying, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll be there for them. Sure. Okay, we'll see. We'll, we'll believe it when we see it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I agree 100%. That's that's the thing to me is like, we have to look at making these men and women more resilient, you know, give them an environment to thrive. Because look what happens every time, you know, shit hits the fan, looking at the same people over and over again, obviously, some other people too. I mean, you know, a lot of people on the logistical side that we're relying on heavily now, but you know, that you can't keep cutting fire stations and, you know, put, making two car, I mean, two officer cars into one officer car, and then you know, immediately turn around and say, we need you now, you know, without there being an effect. And that's the thing is you cannot overwork and understaff your first responders and expect them to be fully prepared when you need them. It's unfortunate, but hopefully we can make some laws, change some laws and change things. And especially with what's going on nowadays, hopefully people will see first responders differently. You know, they will change things. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, then the uh, the next question, closing question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to talk to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, my, there's lots of people I'd recommend. Um, actually, there's one that uh, this officer I'm talking to right now, he actually he's the one going through a lot of stuff right now with his department um, and his injury. Um, but he's he's he, I think he'd be really good to talk to, especially right now because he's not working because they have him at home. Um, and his name is Paul. Um, so I think, I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll send you his information and you can call, give him a call. And I'm sure he'd love to be on your, your podcast. Um, I'll also recommend some other ones. I'll, I'll, I'll write a list of some people that I think would be great that are firemen and police officers. Brilliant. Well, thank you. All right. So then the last question before we make sure we know where to find you online, what do you do to decompress these days? Right now, let's see. Um, I have time with my dogs, so they love it that I'm home. <laughs> so I have time with them. Um, and I just, I've been writing a book, so I've been working on that on my free time. Um, and then just working on my app to help first responders. So that's my way of decompressing. Brilliant. Um, and tell me more about the, I know it's not done yet. What's, what's the finished product hopefully going to look like without giving away too much? Um, basically it's going to be a place for first responders to get help in a lot of different aspects when it comes to work comp. It's going to be a one-stop shop. So it's going to be a place that 
you know, we can take care of our own and make sure we get back and a lot of people will be involved. So it'll be a really good thing. So once it gets done, I'm giving you the information so you can be out there promoting it. (laughs) I will. I will. Thank you. And and you know what? I really would like to work with you also about doing a documentary about injured officers and using your, your name behind the shield because it's everything that's going on with officers. You know, there's a lot of hidden things behind the badge that people should definitely be aware of so we can help protect each other. Yes. Yeah. We'll definitely talk more. Okay. Sounds good. Brilliant. All right. So then if people want to find you online, where are the best places to go? Um, they can go on Instagram and look under Christina Coria Survivor or on Facebook under Christina Coria. And there's no H in my name, so it's C-R. And my last name is C-O-R-I-A. Um, or they can call me. I mean, if they if they go on my Facebook, I think they can find my phone number on there or LinkedIn. Um, you know, they can definitely call me anytime they want. Brilliant. All right. Well, Christina, I just want to say thank you so much. You have a, you know, a very pertinent story and obviously a very powerful story because each time you've still bounced back, you know, to, to be told that you were going to lose an arm and then go back and, you know, be functioning as a, as a police officer again, I think is incredible. But I hope that you're able to resolve the second battle. I think that, you know, I think the people up the ranks probably do care, you know, but sadly there's that disconnect where it comes to, to budgets where we truly do become, numbers and that's where a lot of the you know the the lives are affected in in a negative way so thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story thank you i really appreciate it thank you i'm honored to be on your show 